for tuning into The Great Exchange, a podcast dedicated to looking at the world through gospel glasses. My name is Nick Semenovich, and I will be your host for this Scripture Saturday edition of The Great Exchange. Today we'll be diving back into the book of Genesis, heading into the 44th chapter. We're nearing the end here. And just as a little reminder, last week we went through chapter 43, covered the entire text, and in that chapter we saw that Joseph's brothers, the sons of Jacob, had returned to Egypt after pleading with their father that they would not starve, they would not die by his refusal to send them back to Egypt with his youngest son, Benjamin, whom he had invested great love for and whom he loved so dearly because he was the last remaining descendant offspring of Rachel, his beloved wife. As they went back down to Egypt, the brothers, they did appear before Joseph once again, and we saw that Joseph prepared a banquet feast for them to enjoy with him. And after they pleaded their innocence before a servant, um, we saw that Joseph had provided great rich delicacies for them to enjoy from his portions during that feast. And they were all filled with great joy, great merriment, as that servant so wisely said, to have peace to them and be not afraid. And that truly was the case, as we saw coming to the end of that chapter, that they had no reason to be afraid. They were filled with great joy because all that God had done for them. So as we jump into chapter 44, this is subtitled, Joseph Tests His Brother. I see this as the final test towards the brothers from Joseph to see whether or not their love is genuine, if there truly has been a change of heart, a change of mind towards the sons of Rachel, uh, the beloved sons of Jacob. So when we jump in here, uh, we're going to go into the first five verses, and then we'll take it chunk by chunk as we go, as per usual. So verse 1 says, Then he commanded the steward of this household, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did, as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So in these first five verses, this is the final test given by Joseph towards his brothers. And and that's proven now because Joseph's brothers have passed the earlier test which he had given them, especially the latest one, which had Benjamin being highly favored by Joseph, which saw him receiving five times as much as the rest of the brothers. And that test was given to see Uh, or to use the situation to see whether the brothers despised the children of Rachel, um, much like the sour relationship between Leah and Rachel, and because of that feuding, the children followed suit. Um, But it's because she and her children were highly favored. Um, They were the favorites of Jacob, as it were. So 
this final test here is given. And what Joseph does is he gives all the money back to his brothers once again. Uh, But Joseph takes his silver cup, a cup which would have been used for pagan practices, and he put it in Benjamin's sack. Um, What's important to note is Joseph never once says that he uses this cup for divination. He does say by this he could practice divination, but we know that Joseph is a man of integrity. He does not uh, dive into or dwell into the mystic arts, the dark arts in any sort of way. He is a man of God, and he continues to remain just and upright in all of his actions. And even in this trial, it does not sour his character in any way, but it is as the Lord does with us, testing us to see whether our affections are true or if our hearts are true or not. And it's kind of like that refiner's fire where as the temperature is cranked up hotter and hotter, all the dross, all the stuff that is impure will rise to the surface and be scraped off so that only pure remains. And this is a very similar test towards the brothers of of Joseph. And this is to see in this test whether their love for Benjamin, their youngest brother, was true, or if it was simply a showing in the flesh the day before when they did not uh, make a scene that Benjamin had received five times as much. And in this moment here, as the brothers head back to the land of Canaan, head back to their father's household, their guard is down. And What's interesting is that we see that at the end of chapter 43, where they drink and they're merry with Joseph, they're not really too concerned if there might be something else going on. They think everything is okay, their gift is well received, and they have nothing to be concerned about. But Joseph uses that as an opportunity to pour out or to act out this final test on their behalf so that they could see where their hearts are truly at. And that's really a good point to bring up here is when our guard is down, that's usually when the tests come because we're not prepared for them. But if we are men of character, if we are people of character, then even if we're unprepared, as it were, if we don't see the trial coming, we'll still be prepared because of our past experiences and our current integrity. It'll carry us through the current trial. So their guard is down. And in this situation here, they would be accused of acting out of ingratitude, taking from the kindness of Joseph, their host. And that gets us into uh, the confrontation here, the guilt discovered in verses 6 to 13, where it says, when he overtook them, that is Joseph's servant, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we have found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, And each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes 
and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So the servant here in verse 6 goes after the brothers and accuses them of stealing from their gracious host, one who lavished great kindness on them, and it was really undeserved kindness as well, because as far as they were concerned, they were nobodies. They were just foreigners from another land coming to buy grain because the famine was greatly severe. And they were entertained by the prime minister of the land, which would show such great kindness towards them, but completely undeserved. They have nothing uh, deserving of that great kindness that he showed them. But the brothers are very quick to declare their innocence. Again, keeping in mind that they just had a pleasant meal with Joseph the day before, the prime minister. They just had a pleasant meal with him. Their guard is down. And they're very quick to say, We've, we would never do such a thing. And, and in declaring their innocence, um, they, one of the brothers, maybe all the brothers, I, I have a tendency to think it might be Reuben speaking here because this kind of seems like his sort of response, but they make a rash vow. And it's, again, if whoever has this is going to die. And that sort of quick quick response without real thought sounds like Reuben, as he said even before when he asked Jacob to send Benjamin with, he said, well, kill my two sons if I don't bring them back. So he's not very logical. He's very quick to put up a great... Um, face or front, declaring some sort of strength and ability. Um, But that doesn't seem to be the case here as they are quickly going to be discovered with that cup. So the servant of Joseph takes the vow, this rash vow, and turns it into something more keeping with what would be a reminder of what they did to Joseph all those years earlier. And I think this is so wise in how he does this exact thing. And they quickly lower their sacks of grain. And what's interesting is that the text doesn't really point out that their money is returned in the in the mouths of their sacks once again. But there must have been a sense of relief that have come, that would have come upon each of them as they opened up their sacks one after another and the cup was not discovered. You could probably see that guilt just being removed from them. We didn't do it. We're all good. We did not do anything wrong here. But the servant starts with the oldest, heads down to the youngest, and to their surprise, the cup of Joseph is found in Benjamin's sack, the least of the brothers, the youngest, the one which was highly favored of their father. And it's the one to which their father rested so much hope and love in. And it's the one brother who was an absolute certainty of who had to come back to the land of Canaan. And now he is found to be full of guilt. And he is the one to whom has this silver cup, which was now going to bring them all back to the land of Egypt. So the cup is discovered in verse 13, and they all tear their robes. And this is such a change in these men, because 22 years earlier, though this is, seems to be a vast amount of time in between them, 22 years has passed, and in that course of time, those 22 years earlier, they tore the robes of Joseph off his back and threw him 
into a pit, selling me into slavery. Now see, these brothers now see the particular love their father had for their son, not as a grounds of envy, but of love, which they all desire to have. And this response of these brothers shows that they truly cared for Benjamin. They were no longer harboring animosity and hatred for Rachel's children, but truly had a brotherly love for them, for him, I should say, as they all tear their robes, a sign of great sorrow and lament that this is found in their brother, and ultimately the great distress that it will bring their father. And they realized that the man whom they offended was now the man they needed to appeal to for an innocent verdict. And this is much like us today. We each and every day heap up more and more guilt, not of assumed or uh, pretend offenses, but actual offenses towards God. And the only place we can turn for forgiveness is to the very God that we have offended. That's exactly what Peter explains on the day of Pentecost as he is presenting his sermon to the people that they killed Christ, but they need to come to him for forgiveness. And that seems very strange to our ears that we've offended God, but we have to go to him for forgiveness because we think God we God owes us nothing. He de- we deserve everything. And we actually don't have any sort of guilt before him. Our sins, if we admit that they are sins, are just horizontal. They are not on a vertical plane whatsoever. But here in this text, we see that the character of these men is truly being tested by fire. And what we're beginning to see is the true change of heart, which only God could bring about. Do you love listening to The Great Exchange? You can subscribe to our podcast on any one of these podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and have two engaging episodes delivered to your mobile device each week. Our midweek message covers a myriad of topics and teaches us to look at them all through gospel glasses. And our Scripture Saturday episode is just that, an opportunity to study the Bible one passage of Scripture at a time. Miss an episode? Visit our website, thegreatexchange.ca, and you will find the complete back catalog of our episodes. And don't be shy. We love to hear from you, our listeners. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're not social media savvy, send us an email to thegreatexchangepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining in our ministry as we help you look at the world through gospel glasses. So now we get into verse 14. And we're going to read down to verse 18. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, We are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand this cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So now they come to stand before the the judge, as in, in, in this court case, as it were, 
they come to stand before Joseph, the man in whom they have offended in this test. And all the brothers return, all 11, 11 of them. And what's first off interesting to note is that Judah here again becomes the spokesman for the entire group. We can see that he has matured uh, the greatest and has changed the most since 22 years ago. And in verse 14, we see all the brothers fall before Joseph because he was waiting for them. It was a test. It was something that he planned and purposed to be a revelation to the, of their heart's attitude toward Benjamin and also, most importantly, to their father. And this is just another instance of Joseph's dreams coming to reality, coming to fruition, where the brothers come and kneel before him. But in verse 15, and it's interesting that Judah becomes like the spokesman of the entire group because he is not the oldest. We would expect Reuben to continue to play that part, but Reuben, with his rash vows and quick speech, without careful thought, doesn't really have the fortitude and the ability to speak on behalf of a group of disregard for such a sensitive matter. So, in verse 15, we see that Joseph, as he's going to be talked to by Judah, um, we see that Judah first off says, we have nothing to say before you. We are guilty. We don't, we, what can we say for ourselves? Verse 15, just before that says that Joseph kind of plays the role of a pagan ruler to get them to admit their fault. Again, Joseph doesn't say that he does these divination, these practices, these pagan practices, but that people in his position do this sort of thing. So we can see that he's playing the part in order to get them to admit their guilt. And that's exactly what Judah does. Verse 16 says, what shall we say or what shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. So they admit that they've done wrong and there's no way they can clear themselves. They could Again, come before them, say, we didn't do it, we didn't do it, but the evidence was there. The evidence is in the courtroom, and it's as if they had a smoking gun right there. And Judah proclaims that they are all now servants of Joseph, that none will stay behind without the rest. And why? Because God has revealed their guilt. They knew that they were guilty, and that was plain and bearing heavy on their hearts. And a very interesting thing to note in verse 17, Joseph says... You can all go, but only one of the brothers has to remain. Because I think Joseph understood rightly the, the reality and the character of God. When, when Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, ultimately for his nephew Lot, he said, shall the righteous suffer with the unrighteous? And God said, no. Here, Joseph says, well, no, you're not all going to suffer. It's just the one who's done wrong. And Joseph is setting this up in the same way that they can see that there is a righteous way to live and an unrighteous way to live. And Joseph, even though he's a pagan ruler in this scene here, he still holds to a standard of morality, which is in line with God's character. So he gives the 10 brothers a way out and it's a test to see whether they will let Benjamin rot in Egypt or if they will plead for him 
and bring him home, if they will find some way to bring him home, unlike the same sort of response that they gave all those years earlier when Judah willingly sold his brother into slavery and came home and pleaded innocent. So here now as we get to the end of the chapter, verse 18 to 34, it's a larger chunk, but this is Judah's plea to Joseph that they would be able to return back to Egypt, or return, sorry, back to the land of Canaan, to return to their father so that their father would not be grieved by what has happened. So this section here is Judah's intercession on behalf of Benjamin. Then Judah went up and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and not let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father's love, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then you shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is a beautiful text for us to go through. Judah, he admits the guilt prior to his uh, discourse here, and he admits before Joseph that they are guilty. But now he intercedes on Benjamin's behalf. He does not try to excuse their guilt, but tells of how important it is that Benjamin return with them. Not so that he can be free from the weight of guilt he would personally bear, but for their father's sake, whom they loved so deeply. This is a plea for mercy. Judah is asking them, or Judah is asking Joseph to have mercy on them for their father's sake, because they did not wish to grieve him any longer because of their actions, their sinful actions, their actions which showed that they were selfish and only concerned for themselves. His words prove here that they are not jealous over Benjamin. They are not jealous 
over the great lavishing of love that he's received. They've come to terms with the particular love that Jacob had for him. And they recognize that in his old age, he bore a son, a young son, to a particular woman whom he loved with all his heart. And that love was bound up in the only remaining child left because unknown to him, his son Joseph was still alive. And now after 22 years, these brothers now understand how Jacob felt when Joseph was, as he said, stolen from him. Judah wisely sees that it's not their preservation that is important, but it is their fathers whom cared not just for Joseph, not just for Benjamin, but for all other 10 brothers, 10 sons. All 12 sons of him have been cared for. There was just particular love shown in a greater way to two of them. What's beautiful about this text as well is not just Joseph's care or Judah's care for his brother and most importantly for his father, but the words that he gives at the very end of the chapter where he willingly substitutes himself for Benjamin. And this is why I said earlier that Judah has made the largest transformation over these years. He goes from being the one who sold his brothers into slavery to make a buck to being the only one who risks his very life in order to preserve the life of others. Judah truly becomes, in this moment, a shadowy type of Christ and what he has done on our behalf. What Judah is offering here is to take the place of Benjamin to be a servant to Joseph forever, to be the servant of a foreign king forever, to undergo great hardship and sacrifice and a stressful, hard life so that his brother might go free. That's something that we can see in a greater level in the life of Christ, that Christ came not to bring earthly comfort, not to return to um, a, a comfortable life in a land of Canaan, but ultimately to bring us to glory, to the ultimate hope that we have. Christ came to earth taking on flesh and blood so that he might redeem us from the slavery to sin that we have dealt with our entire lives. He frees us from that slavery to sin that we might become sons of God, sons and daughters of God, and that we might have a great inheritance waiting for us in the future. Christ, like Judah in this instance, doesn't serve to preserve, didn't seek to preserve his own life, but willingly laid it down and sacrificed it for the good of others. And just as we see at the end of here that Judah is scared to see or fearful of the evil that would happen to his father if Benjamin did not return. It really goes to show us, as we finish off this podcast, what sin can lead us to do. Sin can lead us to self-preservation, but righteousness leads us to self-sacrifice. So where is our heart at? What what is the direction or course of our life on the day-to-day? We all 
or we may all attend church on Sunday, and we can be encouraged and motivated to go forth throughout our weeks, ready to serve the Lord. But when the rubber hits the road on Monday, we're not sure if we're doing it. We're not sure if we're truly sacrificing our life for the benefit of others and for the praise of God, or if we're actually trying to preserve our life and hold on to as much of it as we can because we love the comfort and the gifts and the goodies that God has given us. We're not concerned about Him and His glory, even if it means the removal of us from this temporary life. So do we have such short-sightedness that we think that our lives are worth more than others? We, as Christians, we have redemption, purchased full and free by Christ, and we have that eternal inheritance laid up for us in heaven. So we ought to be like Judah in this chapter, who lays down his life so that others might live. Is that our thought process Monday through Friday? If we see the evil that others will experience, the hell that others will experience because of their sin, and say or do nothing, and they go to stand before God, can we easily clear our conscience and say, well, that wasn't my responsibility? That's not what God has called us to. God has called us to be ambassadors for Christ, to represent Him well before others. Christ, when He came, preached repentance to the nations. And we as Christians are to do the same. We are to call people to repent because the evil that they will endure, the hell that they will endure, is eternal. There is no escape. And just to close off the podcast here, Jim Elliott He was an evangelist, a missionary. He wisely said, He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We have the riches of Christ. We have all eternity laid up for us. We have Christ right now interceding on our behalf. We have the Spirit given as a down payment, securing us for an eternal redemption. And if we shrink back, when the persecution, the adversity is light, what's going to happen when the persecution or adversity becomes greater? We might be nowhere to be found. Thus, really showing the state of our hearts that it's not quite right with God. So as we look at this text and we can see the great sacrifice that is necessary for the preservation of life, let us not think that we are greater or better than even Judah here. Let us not think that we do not have to undergo the same sort of sacrifice for the benefit of others. But that's going to do it for this Scripture Saturday episode of The Great Exchange. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Once again, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, send us an email, thegreatexchangepodcast at gmail.com. As well, you can head over to Instagram or Facebook. We have posts coming out every single day of the week. And as well, you can message us on there and we'll be sure to get back to you as quickly as possible. But thank you again. This brings us to the end of the podcast. And as we say at the very end of every single episode, it is finished. It is finished.